0: So if you have a Bible, go ahead and make your way to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1. So just turn to page 1 in your Bible. Pretty easy to find. So everyone should be able to make their way there this morning. And I will read the first two verses from the Word of God from this book of beginnings, written by Moses. He writes, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Of the waters. Father, as we open up your word this morning to this letter of origin, of beginnings, of first things, of Genesis, would you speak to our hearts and help us to see that you are the one behind it all? And that, Father, although you are so big and so immense, you are also very close. And I pray as we explore these chapters from this first book, that you would open up our hearts in the coming weeks to the truth of who you are and how this ought to shape every aspect of our lives. It is a very different story than the story that we hear and see in our culture today. And Father, because we know it's from you, we know it's true. So give us the grace to receive it. Help us to hear what it is that you're saying to each of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm excited to preach this series. I get excited for all of our fall sermon series every year, but today is week one, and I'm telling you, I cannot wait for week two already, or week three, or week four. I'm excited because of what these chapters, the first three chapters of Genesis, that's what we're going to be looking at over the coming couple months, what these chapters represent and the questions that they answer. I'm excited for those reasons. Confusion is viewed today in our culture as intelligence. Confusion is viewed today as intelligence. If you don't have any answers, then you're tolerant, you're sensitive, You're informed. If you have no idea if there is a God, who God is, why there is something instead of nothing, who we are as human beings, why life is so difficult, why our world is full of suffering and evil and hurricanes, why we're here, how we ended up here, where we're going from here, if you don't have answers to these questions, then you're culturally sensitive and humble and acknowledging all the different solutions that people have. If you claim to have truth based on the word of God, the Bible, then you are a monomaniac, arrogant, and intolerant. And yet, when we open up the Bible, we find answers. We find truth. We find clarity. We find the very words that grounded the view of Jesus and all of his teaching. And if we are his imitators, it grounds our view then of the world. There's a lot of people that would prefer the first words of the Old Testament, even the first three chapters, maybe even the whole book, just toss it out. Toss it out. Many Christians decide they should just tear out at least these chapters of Genesis after watching the latest History Channel documentary and hearing a bunch of college professors talk about their views on naturalistic evolutionary theory. So some Christians feel as though this is a fight we can't win. We've got it wrong, that our views are far-fetched and nonsensical. Uh, Some would say, we're not scientists, we're not scholars, so let's just let this part of the story go and focus on Jesus because that's really all that matters, right? So when our kids and our grandkids and our friends and our neighbors come to us asking questions, questions that matter, Questions that God has given us answers to because he knew we needed the answers to them. We don't have something to offer them. So we go to the default Sunday school answer and say, let's just talk about Jesus instead. Now, we should always point people to Jesus, Always, you'll never hear a sermon preached from this campus that does not talk about Jesus. However, dismissing the first three chapters of Genesis as poetry or myth or legend, as so many people do, and just focusing on Jesus isn't a good approach to our faith because that's not the approach Jesus himself took. That's not what he did. Jesus did not focus on Jesus and ignore the first three chapters of Genesis. In fact, whenever he was asked questions, oftentimes he would go back to Genesis to set up his answer. When he was being asked about marriage and divorce, he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning Made them male and female. Have you not read? He's basically saying, this is Judaism 101. This is basic stuff. This is foundational to how we view one another, how we view the world, and what we think about God. So focusing on Jesus means believing that Genesis is foundational to our faith and our understanding of everything. Now, for the last 200 or so years, scholars, scientists, And today, people who think they're an expert on things simply because they have a blog or a Facebook page have been coming to Genesis and they've been asking questions never intended to be answered within the pages. They're often good questions. They'll come to Genesis asking good questions, questions about the age of the earth and questions about evolution And by the way, if I could just make an aside there, evolution, the word itself, it's not a bad word. It just needs a proper definition. It needs reclaimed because we are evolving, we are changing, but not the way Darwin suggested and not the way theistic evolutionists suggest either. I'm evolving in my faith. I'm evolving, unfortunately, in my body. I'm not the same as I was a few years ago, or 10 years ago, or 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, and neither are you. According to the Bible, I'm evolving in the image of the Son, into the image of the Son. Because of my faith in Jesus Christ, I'm becoming more like Jesus through the Holy Spirit. I'm changing. So let's reclaim and reframe that word. It's not a bad word. But these questions that they bring up about Genesis, about the age of the earth, about evolution, these are not the questions people were asking three or four thousand years ago in the ancient Middle East. This isn't what they came to the text and were wondering about. And so people miss the whole point and the incredible beauty of the first few chapters of our scriptures by forcing things onto the text that Moses never intended to directly answer. It's like going to watch a movie with that friend or wife or husband or kid or whoever who asks a million questions during the movie. You know who you are. Shame on you, by the way. And so you're watching this movie and they they start asking questions like, I wonder if they're ad-libbing right now or if that was actually written in the script. Or I wonder how they built that scene. Or I wonder how much this movie cost. I wonder how long it took to make this. What what do you think we're doing after the movies tonight? Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? A million questions. And what does that do to the person who's watching the movie? It ruins it. It totally ruins it. And they're, quite frankly, the wrong questions the questions about whether it's a stunt double or the real actor or how did they make that scene or how long did it take, those aren't the questions that the writer and the director of the movie itself meant for you to ask while you're watching the movie. There were other things that they wanted you to consider. And the questions that our culture has been asking of Genesis are the wrong questions. Most of the questions are how questions. How old is the earth? How long were the days? These are good questions, but not the exact questions Genesis was written to answer. Genesis 1 through 3 answers why questions, and why questions are always more significant. Let me prove that to you. What's more significant to you? How you got married? How? Like you stood In front of maybe a pastor or someone and you shared some words and you got dressed up. That's the how. Or is this more significant? Why did you get married? That's more significant. That's further down. That's underneath the surfaces. Genesis answers the why questions. It answers why we are here. Why is there something rather than nothing? It answers these questions and many more. And this is the first revelation of the word of God to us. We see it right here in the text, and maybe it's so basic, but the truth is these basic truths ought to transform us completely and ought to reshape our thinking of the world. And I know it can for you today. Here's the first revelation we see. God is the creator. And that has vast implication over our lives in this world. God is Is the creator. And this simple truth shapes how we see all of life. And it starts with the affirmation also that God is. That God is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These ten words in the original language are as poetic as they are potent They were written for us, but first they were written to the people of Israel as they were ready to enter into the promised land. And the people of Canaan, the nations of Canaan, they believed in a plurality of gods. And the people that the Israelites had just left, the Egyptians, they believed in a pantheon of gods. And so Moses makes it clear to Israel that they're in the middle of a story. And it's a story with a beginning, And it's a story that's moving towards an end. And in the beginning of their story, which is also the beginning of the universe itself, there is one God, not many. He later says in Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He doesn't say in the beginning, many gods. He doesn't say there was no beginning. He says in the beginning, God. Now we'll talk about the word that he uses for God here in a moment. But it has both singularity as well as plurality to it. Did you know that until 1964, this is not long ago, friends, not long ago at all, until 1964, the prevailing theory of the origins of the universe in scientific circles was that the universe had no origin. I remember this from my days in college. I was a biology major. I remember studying these theories, and it was called this, the steady state hypotheses the steady state hypothesis, it suggested that the universe had always existed and would always exist in its current state. So if you were a scholar or a scientist and you opposed or rejected the steady state hypothesis, you'd be ridiculed. You'd be basically termed as someone who was ignorant of the truth. Just like today if you try to question naturalism. Now, the steady state hypothesis said there was no beginning. Now, what does Genesis say? In the beginning. So what happened was it started to have influence upon the church, certainly within our culture, and people started to let go of these first three chapters of Genesis and say it's just myth, it's just legend, it's not meant to be interpreted as real history. Then... A few decades even before it was solidified, in the 1920s, some scientists published articles showing that there was evidence that the universe was actually expanding. And if it was expanding, there must have been a beginning. Eventually, the entire scientific community did an about-face, and they said, well, yes, by the evidence we now see and understand today, after thousands of years of human history, now we understand that the universe was expanding, which suggests that it had a Beginning, a center. The point is, let's not get so worked up about what scientists have to say. Some of them are doing their best to understand the complexities of the universe, and we've come a long way as people, (laughs) because that's what we are, just people. And we've come a long way in our understanding as people in these areas, and some scientists study with integrity, and they do so with proper agendas, but many do not. Many have an agenda. Many are trying to pro- promote, produce, to turn the tide of opinion. So let's remember today that ironclad scientific theories might become tomorrow's laughingstock. And that the Bible is not inconsistent with these conclusions and theories once they are found to be true. It's like fashion. One day we'll all be laughing at skinny jeans. Some of you already are. But for today, it's kind of what is the norm. So Moses here is answering the question. Is there a God? Are there many gods? Was there something or nothing? The answer God is, that's the answer, God is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, let's learn a new word this morning. I don't really like obscure words because I don't ever remember them, but this one's important. The word is aseity, aseity. An aseity, it's from a Latin word meaning from and see meaning self. So scripture teaches that God is an aseity. He's an aseity. That means he is from himself. He depends on nothing and no one for his existence. He has always existed. He is self-sustaining. He has no needs whatsoever. Now, this separates us, Christianity, from many other religions and worldviews that are in existence today. Eastern religions, for example, say that God is everything, that we're all part of him and a piece of him and going back to him, and, and we're all just God. Secular thought says God is nothing. Christianity says there is a God. We are not him. He was not made. We are made by him. Think about the implications here, friends. This is so different from what you see everywhere in our educational system, in what we read, in what is promoted and produced. The wording is actually beautiful. The word for God in the text itself is Elohim. And Elohim is plural. The next word created is in the singular. So follow this for a moment, please. So God... Plural, one God, we find out later in scripture, three persons, the Holy Trinity. So God, the Holy Trinity, created, singular. The one and only God who is triune in person is creator. And that's just the first four words. I mean, think about what that teaches us about life and about who God is, that God is one, and yet we find out that He has multiple persons, three persons within the Trinity. So he's one, one creation, one God, a holy triune God. When Moses says that God created the heavens and the earth, it's like like us saying about the body from head to toe, it's meaning the whole body. So God created the whole universe, He created the whole universe from the heavens to the earth, from head to toe. Every one of the billions of galaxies, every one of the billions of stars, every speck of dust, every atom, every electron, every neutron, every person, you and me, created by him. Now look at verse 2. This is another truth that we find that shapes the way we see life. He says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God brings chaos into order. Before God starts speaking light and life into the planet as we know it, what was it like? It says that it was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The deep refers to the abyss, the bottom of the ocean, the bottom of the earth. The point is that the earth is uninhabitable. It is not prepared yet for life. And that is what God is preparing her for. So what's going to overcome the darkness What's going to pierce into this emptiness? What's going to bring shape to the chaos? And what's going to bring order to the waters? The Spirit of God. It says he is hovering. Hovering. It means that he has penetrated the darkness and is about to bring life. Moses uses the same word of God, talking about God as though he is the wings of an eagle, protecting and bringing security, comfort, and order to Uh, the eagle's nest, to its babies. Now, for most scientists, all the order that we see around us is a result, according to them, of randomness. It's all simply the result of randomness. The universe abides by laws, and those laws, over an infinite period of time, partnered with some eternal raw materials, randomly brought about some order. And if this is the case, then life is meaningless. And all we can do is hope that by chance, some of the chaos of the universe aligns itself enough to where we live a decent life. That would be a best-case scenario. Nietzsche, the philosopher, told his contemporaries who had no use for God, if there is no God, then have the guts to admit that life is meaningless. If there is no God, have the guts to admit that life is meaningless. But nobody lives this way. Nobody lives this way. When we think about our children, why why do we do 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 baby dedications? Because we think that their life matters, has significance, has meaning. Why do we send our kids to school? Because we think if they'll get educated and if they learn, then they'll be prepared for life better because their life has meaning. It matters. Why do we eat the right foods for those who try? <laughs> because we want to live a long life. Why? Because we believe that life has meaning. It matters. There's purpose. Why do we save all the photos and all the little trinkets of our experiences? Uh, experiences? Because we believe life has meaning. It has purpose. It matters. Why do we, I mean, you could go to silly stuff. Why do you name a dog? Why do you name a pet Because it brings meaning. Because we think there's something that matters here. Some scientists tell us our lives are simply accidents. But everything in us, in our heart, rebels against that and says, my life matters. And scripture says from the very beginning that you're not crazy for thinking your life matters. Think about this. If God brought order out of chaos, if God took all the nothingness and formed all that is and you are here this morning living and breathing and God took all that chaos and brought structure to it, that means that you are not an accident. You were formed purposefully, intelligently, intentionally, Right now, for this season, if God is, and God is behind, then God made you, then you are not simply matter, you matter. You're not just matter, you matter. And maybe you didn't really think that, or maybe people in your life have told you you don't. Or maybe when you see all the genocide and the things that happen in the world, you say, there there isn't much value here. Well, Well, this tells us in the very first couple words that if all this chaos was brought into order by an intelligent, transcendent God, and we're part of that creation, then that must mean we have purpose. You matter, and you matter much more than you could probably ever know. And much more than any of us could ever realize. These verses remind me of the transcendence of God. That he is beyond. He's over all things, above all things, behind all things. We cannot contain him. We cannot fully comprehend him. He is so big and yet... The fact that he is behind it all and hovering over it all and bringing order to it all, even when I don't get it, even when I don't understand it, even when we don't understand what he's up to, it reminds us as well of his imminence. Transcendence means set apart. He's above. Imminence means close, personal. He knows me. He knows you. He created me. He created me you. He loves me. He loves you. God is transcendent and imminent and the creator. How has God proven his imminence? Maybe you're here and you say, okay, well, I, I kind of buy this because I never thought that, that everything that is kind of came from some pre-existing matter I understood that there was some intelligent being, some greater power beyond, and so I believe that God is transcendent, but how do I know, how can I be sure that he is actually imminent, that he knows me, that when I speak to him, he actually hears, listens, responds, and comprehends? Well, we find out the answer in the first words of the New Testament When the Apostle John writes, hearkening back to Genesis 1, he says in like manner, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. How do we know that God is not just transcendent, but also imminent? Because he came as one of us. And that blows my mind when I think about Genesis 1.1 and one two. That Jesus was with the Father as the Spirit hovered over the chaos, and he brought life into a lifeless universe. Then he came to our chaotic world to bring new life into lifeless souls. He brought order. We'll find out in chapter 3 that we didn't want to live under God's care. We didn't want to live under his wings. We didn't want to live under his protection. So we wanted to introduce chaos back into the system And yet Jesus, when he came, he came into his broken and rebellious creation to recreate order and life in the soul of all those who would believe, to invite us back into the type of relationship that God always intended. People are asking, if God's the creator, why did he allow these hurricanes, which have caused so much suffering? It's not a bad question, but it's probably not the most important question most important question to me in light of these verses is if God's the creator, if God is, why did he send his son to suffer in the flesh? It blows my mind to think that Jesus came to one of his 100 billion or more galaxies. (laughs) He chose this one. And he came to this planet amongst the 100 billion or more planets that he breathed into existence. And not only that, there's 8 billion people on this planet, at least there about right now, and he chose to come as one of us. And he did it for one basic reason that shapes the way we see life. John tells us, the same apostle John goes on to tell us, why did he do this? Why did the creator God, the transcendent God, demonstrate his imminence by coming to us and rescuing us out of our own chaos as we place our faith in his sacrifice? Why would he he do this? Love. That's the answer. John says all of it is because of love. God is creator. He created you. He created life. He can recreate your spiritual life as you submit to him. What is our response to such a God as this? I mean, it's it's mind-blowing to consider. I'm gonna invite the band to come up, but as they do, what should our response be? I can really only think of a few responses. If God is, and if God is the creator, he created the heavens and the earth, and that means that I am part of his creation. That means he knows exactly who I am and has, he has intentionally formed me and you. And that means that we are part of this creation. And and if it is true that he came and dwelt among us, what is our response to this type of God? It's simply worship. All we can do is respond with worship. And all we can do is say, if this is who you are and this is who I am, Then along with all of creation, if it was all made to bring you glory, so will I.